All right, kids, come on up. Even if you're visiting this morning, come on up and join us. Feel free to bring somebody with you. All right. As they're coming, kids, I want to just say how well you have been listening lately and taking in God's Word, and that's really, really neat to see. So thanks for, thanks for that. Thanks for taking it seriously. All right, so as you know, we've been preaching through what book of the Bible lately? Go ahead, just say it. Acts, yeah, we've been preaching through Acts, and guess what? We are at the end, end of Acts. So today is the last day preaching in the book of Acts. And so we're finishing up. And so throughout the second half of the book of Acts, we've been following Paul, right, and seeing how God was using him to preach the gospel all over the world, right? All different places around the world, preaching the gospel and building up the church, right? If you remember, the Lord had told Paul that he would go to the city of Rome and continue to preach about Jesus there, right? And so today, as we finish up the book of Acts, we're going to hear about his travels to the city of Rome. And we're going to hear how he was traveling on a ship as a prisoner. Remember in Jerusalem, they didn't like him very much. And they arrested him, right? And so now he is a prisoner, and he is going to be traveling on a ship to get to Rome. But as he's traveling, a great storm comes up. Is that good for a ship to be in the middle of a big storm? No, not at all. And so in the midst of this great storm, everyone on the ship thought they were going to die. They didn't see any way that they could get out of it. They didn't think there was any way that they could survive. And so they thought this was the end. That's how bad the circumstances of the storm were for the people. And so Paul and the others were completely hopeless. They didn't have any hope left. Now, do you think that Paul is going to die in this storm? No, why not? God, right? And what did God tell him? He said, you're going to get where? Well, in heaven, after he dies, but where does he have to, go, have to go on earth yet? The Lord told him he was going to go to the city of Rome. Yeah, and he wasn't at Rome yet, right? And so God was going to preserve him. Do you think that what God says will happen is actually going to happen? Yes, all the time, right? Even though the circumstances did not look so good and the circumstances looked hopeless, what God says will happen. And so Paul does end up in Rome. Now, we have a destination. It's a little different than what Paul's going to Rome here, but it's similar. Our destination is not in this world. We have somewhere where we're going, which somebody already mentioned, right? We have heaven, right? That's our destination. It's not in this world. Our ultimate destination is in heaven with Jesus Christ. God has promised that all who have faith in Christ will get there. We will be there with Christ in heaven one day. But sometimes on our journey there throughout this life, we face hard stuff, don't we? We have some difficult circumstances that we have come before us. Some hard things happen in our lives, right? And sometimes things can even seem hopeless, right? But we can trust God and His Word because what God says is always true. And God is faithful. That means he will carry out all that he says in his word, right? In Psalm 145, verse 13, it says, the Lord is faithful in all his words, everything he says. So how many of God's words will he be faithful to complete? What did it say? Everyone, all, right? He's faithful in all of his words. So everything we see from God in his word will come true. It, is ha- it will happen. So if he promises eternal life and salvation to us, to those who come to faith in Christ, will that happen? Yes, it will. It will happen, right? It is true. And so because of that, we can have great faith and great confidence in God and in his word. And so as you read his word, and as you hear it preached this morning and other times, you can believe it to be true and put all of your faith and your confidence in it because we have a faithful God. So thanks for coming up. Thanks for listening so well. You can go back and have a seat. All right. Uh, Last sermon on the book of Acts this morning. So we are in Acts chapters 27 and 28. If you would turn there with me, please. After Acts, 
We're going to spend the next couple weeks in the last chapters of John leading up till Easter. And so Pastor Jeff will be preaching a sermon in the last couple chapters of John, then Pastor Mark, and then I'll do John's uh, telling of Christ's death on Good Friday and then resurrection on Easter Sunday. Then after that, we're going to go to Galatians. care to know where we're going. If you have your fingers in Acts 27, keep it there and turn to John 15. I want to answer the question, how does Paul you know, handle so much difficulty so well by such faith? As Pastor Jeff described, he's in just an awful storm in the middle of an See, there is nothing to look for. They, they know they're going to die. And uh, Paul is keeping his head kind of like Christ did when he was on the storm in the Sea of Galilee sleeping. How does Paul do that? Charles Spurgeon has a quote, somebody to the effect of that he has learned, that he has learned to kiss the trials, to be thankful for the great difficulties because they have helped him grow his faith. In John 15, we see this analogy of believers to Christ is the vine, his father is the gardener, the vine dresser, and his father connects us to Christ and prunes us. If we don't bear fruit, he'll take you away. And so there are Always people in the church who claim Christ but do not bear the fruit over time of Christ and sometimes they leave. And that is evidence that they never were in Christ. But for those that he truly brings to Christ, he wants us to bear fruit. He prunes that we may bear more fruit. He prunes. And pruning is what Paul has endured throughout the book of Acts. Another way to talk about pruning and is discipline. Paul was told at his conversion that he will be shown how much he must suffer for, for the name of Christ. And that suffering is God's fatherly discipline of his son so that his son, his church, could bear a lot of fruit. That's what we see consistently throughout Acts. Paul and the church consistently bear a lot of fruit. We, we, we noted again and again and again that the word would go forth, that the word would make progress, The many were coming to the faith. There was a lot of fruit being born out of this suffering, this discipline, this pruning. And you know where you got to go with that, right? If you want to bear fruit that glorifies God, you're going to have to entrust yourself to the Father who will prune you, who will discipline you. He is an indulgent Father, but He is not an indulgent Father. He is very hard on His children. He is very hard on Paul in order that Paul might be pruned, that he might bear much fruit. So that's what we see going on here. And we see it finally and fully in this sea voyage to Rome where it is harrowing to say the least. And so that's what I want for you. Do you have the faith to be pruned? Do you have the faith to get knocked about in this life? Last week, we ended the service with Keith telling us that sometimes it was difficult for him to sing, truly, all I have is Christ. And I said afterwards, the reason I can sing it truly is because it was one of those songs that got me through a significant seizing and pruning. I was knocked about so I could sing it. And so that's what we're seeing in Acts. So young people... If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to get pruned. You're going to get cut. You're going to get snipped. You're going to get broken. 
And it's God's fatherly care for you that you can be useful to him in a family or in a job or especially in the church to bear fruit. So that's what we want. I am going to continue what I've been doing. We have 75 verses. So I'm going to read and we're going to stop along the way at a few stop-offs and hopefully you'll be pruned. (laughs) Let me pray first. Father, your hands have made and fashioned us. And so please give us understanding now that we might learn your commandments. Father, if we fear you, we will rejoice because there is hope in your word. Your rules are righteous, and we know that in your faithfulness you afflict us. And so don't let your steadfast love go from us. Comfort us according to your promise. Let mercy come to us according to your word that we may live. Teach us to delight in your law. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a map because I know how much you love maps. There it is. Paul is again, if you remember, in Caesarea where he was arrested. I mean, he was in Jerusalem, he was arrested, they took him to Caesarea where he was imprisoned. We saw that last week in Acts chapters 25 and 26 where he spent a few years. In Acts chapter 27, it begins where they decide to set sail for Italy. So what you see there is the journey to Italy. So you'll see some of those names along the way. We can just leave that up and you can check it out. So let's begin. Again, I'm going to stop several times along the way. And it was decided that we, so here we have this pronoun that includes the author of, of Acts, Luke. Luke is with him on a journey. He's, with, he's on the ship. This is a first-hand account. Should set sail for Italy. Remember, God had said that you must proclaim my name. You must bear witness in Rome. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which is about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Okay, quickly there. Isn't it good to have companions? If you want to liken this sea voyage to the Christian life, which I think we can, this uh, section isn't just metaphor for the Christian life. Paul actually endured this awful journey. But that is our life. We're headed... For an eternal port, we're headed to heaven. Along the way, it's going to be sometimes very, very difficult. And it's very, it's a very gracious gift of God to give us companions like this Aristarchus, like Luke, along the way. And so, don't neglect, brothers and sisters, your need for others. I think this is one of the difficulties of that song, All All I Have is Christ. Because there is some kind of mistaken spirituality where you think all I need is Jesus. I don't need people. And that is not true. All, all I need is Christ. And the way that Christ often comes to you is in his people, especially in those very few special people that God gives you that are very helpful to you. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That, that is people. Maybe it's a spouse it's others, you'll need this. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Remember, they know that Paul isn't guilty. They know that he has done nothing wrong. And yet they, he appealed to Caesar, to Caesar must go. But along the way, he's given just about complete freedom, although he's in chains, maybe. Putting out to sea, From there we sailed in the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, so that's northern Africa, sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Snidus. I... I don't know how to pronounce these words except by listening to other people pronounce them, so don't think me anything special. I didn't know how to pronounce that word, so I had to listen to it this morning. It's snittus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. 
Coasting along with some dif- with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of L- uh, Sea. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, uh, so the fast was already over, this indicates that it's late fall, early winter. It's not the time to be on the bed. Paul advised them saying, sirs, <clears throat> I see... Uh, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to Paul. Well, that, that's nothing wrong. Paul's not a sailor. He's not the owner of the ship. Makes sense that he's not going to listen to him. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. All right. Famous last words. Oh, it'll hold. Right? Right, Mike? Yeah. Right? You're loading something in the back of your pickup, one tie down, it'd be all right. That's what they're thinking. We got time. We'll make it. They put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So they would typically not be on the sea this time of the year. And they would, if they were voyaging, stop in at a port that was suitable for a three to four months layover. Isn't that what a different world? We can, you know, be in London in six or seven hours. They'd have to take three or four months at an unknown place and figure it out. Now when the winds, or now when the south wind blew gently, I'm in verse 13, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. So there you are, Crete's right there. They were hoping just to get to Phoenix, just the west end of Crete. But soon a tempestuous wind called an nor'easter <clears throat> struck down from the land. And the ship was caught and could not face the wind, so they couldn't head back to the north and to the west. They, they couldn't make Crete. We gave way to it and were driven along. That is, they just let it go with the wind. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed some difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they supported it. They used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So it's getting desperate. They've secured the ship. They've done all they can do. And, you know, they're, they're desperate. They're, they're throwing over things that they need. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. That's the means to uh, control, to raise and lower things. They, they've now lost complete control. With their own hands, they did this. When neither sun nor star appeared for many days, with no, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now that hope is hope in man. Again, you can liken this journey to salvation, to getting to heaven. And at the start of salvation and through it all, you must be that. You come to Christ because all hope in yourself has been lost, abandoned. This is why we come to Christ. Because I've looked in here, I've tried to manage it, I've tried to right the ship, I've tried to improve myself morally, I've tried to say no to that which I should say no to, and yes to that which I should say yes to, and I've come to the point of finally realizing I am not Savior. And so, this is why God often brings us into great difficulties. Because we are so proud. Moms, are you there with your little ones? Of course, God gave you a gift of a child because it is a real blessing. But he also gave you a gift of a child in order to strike you down. Right? Because you need God. And you need others. And so God is going to do that throughout your life. He's going to consistently 
prune you, break you, so that you lose all hope in yourself and others. So what does God want of you? Your acknowledgement that you are utterly insufficient, unable, and that you need him. That's what he wants from you. Since they had been without food, verse 21, for a long time Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. (laughs) I I laugh every time I read that. Just want to put it out there. I was right. Should have listened to me. (laughs) And not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. What? (laughs) Take heart? For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as been told, but we must run aground on some island. So an angel, a revelation from God. Now, there are many times where the devil parades as an angel of light and we may receive impressions or things that we think from are from the Lord, but they're not. They're from the devil or from our own flesh. But Paul here is convinced truly that this is from God. And so he feels great confidence to say very boldly, we will not die. Take heart. God has given me a message. Again, in one sense, this is true of every Christian. We believe God's word. That is our only sure hope. And yet, what do we do when we have feelings like God is speaking to us outside of the Bible? Well, we should weigh it according to Scripture. We should get the input of others. But we should have much more faith to believe the written word of God and hold fast to it. And look at in verse 24, God has granted you all those who will sail with you. This is the doctrine of the Bible often called common grace. We know grace in the sense of God comes to his children and saves us. That saving grace. But there is also a common giving of grace to all of humanity. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He spares here not only his beloved son in Christ Paul, but he's going to spare the other 275 on the ship as well. And so this world is littered full of evidences of God's kindness to those who are not deserving it at all. And so God has put in this world thousands upon thousands of opportunities for you to look at something and say, God is a God of grace. That's what we see here. So they're headed on the ship, they're driven along, and Paul receives this revelation of great kindness from God that all will live, but the ship is going to be destroyed. When the 14th night had come in verse 27, as we were being driven along the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that we were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. All right. Do you see some incongruity here? What? God told me to be safe. Who cares what the sailors do, right? God told them they're going to be fine. God gave him his word, and so what the sailors do doesn't matter at all, right? Because that's the doctrine of God's sovereignty in the Bible, right? No, that's called fatalism. That's paganism. That's not Christianity. 
Christianity does not divide God's sovereign will from the secondary means that God has willed to accomplish his will. Both are true. God has said the ship and all, or all on the ship will be spared. And if you don't do the things that humans need to do, the ship won't be spared. Don't let them go. Cut the ropes. They got to stay on the ship or we won't have the manpower. Both are true, brothers and sisters. Away with all of the silliness that God is determined when I'm going to die, it doesn't really matter what I eat or drink or inject into my body. Means matter. What you do matters. There is no separation in the Bible from God's sovereign will and our activity and choices. They are one. God ordains what happens and God ordains everything along the way so that that happens. And all of those things matter. You might think that Paul has no faith. Rather, he has faith. So they must act. God's sovereignty is no excuse for our laziness, for our passivity. They do God's sovereignty does not nullify or make unimportant our decisions or encourage our idleness. Rather, encourages us to take care. So let me take that concept and move it into a realm that you, is very important to you and that's related but not about a ship on a sea. I want to do parenting and discipline. Is it true that God has determined before the foundation of the world whether or not he's going to save your child, children. Yeah. Okay. And so do you need to spank your kids when they're doing something evil and bad and you've told them to stop and they keep doing it? Absolutely. And in Scripture, we are given rock-solid assurance that if you will not spare the rod but will strike your child, it will save his soul from destruction or her soul okay god is sovereign over the salvation of your child and god says in his holy eternal world word that if you strike his if you strike him if you spank him so that it hurts i know kids you love me right now he will not die but if you refuse you are setting your soul on his destruction or her destruction. Okay? So God has ordained, hopefully, the salvation of your child. We don't know that. And he has ordained the means by which your child will be saved. And one of those primary means is when your one-year-old is crawling towards the outlet and you say, No! And they look at you like, Something in my world has just changed. I've never heard that word with that tone before. And the next day, he crawls again and you say, no. And he sits back and the next day, he crawls looking at you and you say, no. And then he starts reaching out his hand. And you get down there and you smack his hand real hard. And he has just learned the most vital lesson that there are things in this world that will harm him and destroy him. And when they go against your command, there is going to be pain. Because you know that when you get older, right? If you go against God's commands, there is real pain when you're playing for keeps, right? And so God's sovereignty should not cause you to neglect the ordinary, regular means that God uses to save your children, particularly discipline, spanking with a spoon on the bottom, not abusively, not in a rage, in love, under self-control, because you want your child's soul to be saved. Isn't that something? God attaches that simple act of faith to his eternal destination. Isn't that wonderful? 
So moms, I know you're often reluctant, but get on it. When your husband is disciplining your son or daughter, do not lead a rebellion against him. Don't neglect it. Verse 32. Then the soldiers cut away the rope, so they've learned their lesson. They should listen to this guy. Of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food. That's how terrified they were. Having taken nothing, therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had given thanks, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. So this is a good thing to do. Pray before you eat and thanks, right? Isn't that delightful? Then they were all encouraged and ate some food among themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing, it, throwing out the weed into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. How unkind, after one of them had just saved everybody. And remained immovable, oh, oh, I'm sorry, lest any should swim away and escape, but the centurion... Wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And, on the re- and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So God's word proved true. Verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we had learned that the island was called Malta. So you can see just south of Syracuse there, there's this little island of Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness. Just a quick note there. God will often do that in our lives. He'll bring unexpected, unusual kindness from sources that you don't expect it at all. It's really a thing to recognize and give praise to God for. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook the creature into the fire, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up and, or, or, fall, or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. <laughs> uh, so here, we, we do realize that God brings judgment upon sinners in this world in, in sometimes very clear, obvious ways. Right, so was Hurricane Katrina judgment? Absolutely. In a very wicked area, right? Were the earthquakes and tsunamis several years ago God's judgment? Absolutely. Right? And so, with right reason, they thought he had escaped judgment, but he hadn't escaped judgment when the viper lashed on him. But of course they're wrong because we have to be patient in our judgments. We... Need to let it play out. And so, kind of like Job, where Job's friend assumed that he must have been doing some wicked deeds, and so God was bringing him into judgment. Job's friends were correct, but incorrect. They were too hasty in their judgment. They didn't have all of the information. And so we sometimes do need to wait until we see the final outcome. But here they quickly change their minds. He goes from a murderer deserving death to a god. So the fickleness of man. Let's continue on, verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. 
It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. So very quickly, healing. We see in scripture and sing in songs that Christ has borne our sicknesses. He has healed our diseases in Isaiah 53. And so does God heal sickness? Yes. Yep. Yep. But as we often see in the book of Acts, these miracles are often given when they encounter a people in a culture that have never heard the gospel. And so the miracles, here healing, are given in order to help these pagans to receive the truth of the gospel, also seeing the power of God. And so can God heal diseases in people that you love or in yourself? Absolutely. Should we pray for it? Absolutely. But we know, we also pray, thy will be done. God, please heal if it's your will. And that attachment of if it's your will isn't a lack of faith. It is an expression that there are times where God does not heal. And that one who dies in faith in Christ does receive healing. Though we miss them terribly. Verse 10, they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting it at Syracuse, we stayed for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. Regium. And after a day, on a, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puttioli. That sounds Italian. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. I want to, again, remind you of, of um, how thankful and needful we are of other Christians. We live in a culture that is very independent. Uh, the one commitment we have above all other commitments in culture, in, in our culture, is autonomy. And Christians have to be very different because we need each other. Now, there is an independence of we each need to pull our own weight. We each need to, according to our gifts and our abilities, do what we can. We do it for the sake of others, but you need me. <laughs> oh, it's sad for you. And I need you, and you need them, and they need you. The church is a body. Each part is needed. No one can say to themselves, I'm not needed here. No one can say to another, you're not needed here. But the church is full and complete when every part is functioning as it should. And so notice Paul's thankfulness and notice that he took courage. That, that word take courage is literally encourage. Encourage doesn't made, mean to make somebody feel happy. It means that you give them strength. Their presence, their words, their aids give you what you need to keep going. That's what believers should be. So go to a neighborhood small group and be grateful and get some strength. Verse 16, when he came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself, again, with a soldier guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I did nothing against our people or, or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem in the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. 
but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against, so don't forget the church will always be maligned. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. A couple things there. One, the only place you can learn about how God saves you is from Scripture. There is no salvation apart from Christ, and there is no salvation apart from God's revelation of Christ in the Word, which is often preached. That's one. Two, when you come to Christ, you come to a king who rules and reigns over a kingdom that's expanding and will one day dominate everything. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. We are his people, his peasants saved by his grace. And we are here to proclaim the excellencies of our king who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light by how we live with faith in our king, in obedience to our king, in submission to our king. So the, the confession of a Christian is Jesus is Lord. And so you come to the king. So I, I want to say to some of you who are not yet convinced about Jesus that you are refusing the king. You are refusing the king who died and rose to save you from your sins. You're refusing to humble yourself in repentance and come to him in faith. And there is a dear price to refuse the king. There is a heavy cost to refuse him who made you and who has redeemed you by his blood. And I would not that you would suffer that. And so would you please come to him. Verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. Please listen carefully how Paul concludes his sermon. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see, see, but never perceive. For this people has grown dull. This people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their ears or eyes and see and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would hear them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived, pause there. Uh, You've heard it said, maybe to you, you're you're never going to get it. What's wrong with you? You're you're just, you're never going to get it. Here, Isaiah is telling the Jews of his day that his preaching is actually judgment on them. Remember God said to Isaiah in Isaiah 6, who, 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 who will go? Isaiah said, I'll go. Well, here's what the sermon is. Nobody's going to listen. I'm going to deaden the hearts, blind the eyes, stop the ears, so that your preaching of salvation to them might be further judgment on them because they have dulled their hearts They have stopped their ears. They have closed their eyes. So Paul gives a very hard saying. He uses it at the end as a hammer to try to shatter their stubbornness. Paul had before this, with much patience it looks like, and gentleness, proclaimed Christ, but now they're obstinate, And he does what he can by faith to shatter the concrete. He gets the sledgehammer, you know, after using less hard methods. Don't forget that the word of God will always divide. The word of God is life to those being saved. It is the aroma of death to those who are hard. 
And we see that here. It's noted at the end, let me read the last two verses. He lived the whole, there a whole two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. I was thinking when I word that, read that word bold this week, when I hear people talk about their pastors, right, you listen, what they commend about their pastors, I never hear, I tell people in premarital counseling to never use 100% words with their spouse. Right, right guys? You never say to your spouse, you never, you always. I just did it, you never. I never hear them commend their pastor for boldness. You know what they always talk about? He's a good man. He's a good preacher. He's a good shepherd. He's very kind. So it strikes me that boldness in our culture is no longer a desirable virtue. We, we don't like boldness. We don't commend it. We see it as a failure, actually. We see it as a pastor or a father or a boss being proud or arrogant or mean. Because the one thing you can't do anymore in our culture is be bold. You can't use your authority. You can't do it. I'm not saying this because I think I'm bold. If you knew what goes on in my heart and mind, you would think otherwise. I just don't care that much what you think. I used to think that wasn't true, but that's more true than I was often willing to admit it. I do care, but I, I got to not care. But we need boldness. This is the last thing Paul was commended for. This is the last word we have about Paul. The one thing that Luke wants to portray to people is going to read Luke's account. Remember, Luke, or Paul's the guy who said, follow me as I follow Christ. The one thing that Paul wants, or that Luke wants to make sure you know about this servant of Christ, that he was bold. He had some courage. He did not shrink back from telling him everything that they needed to hear. We must recover this virtue, shouldn't we? Isn't the reason that the church has very little cultural impact is because it lacks this thing? Because we're so jello-y? We're so easily shifted. Isn't the reason for much weakness among Christians that they will not put up with sound preaching, but having itching ears will only listen to those who tell them what they want to hear? I have heard that so much in the pastorate. Why are you leaving? And the answer is always not the truth. <laughs> At least not the main thing. You know, just a different fit. But it's always the preaching. And it's always that they heard some offensive things. And I rarely say, can we look at Second Timothy 4? Are, are you just somebody who wants your ears itched? I haven't really said that to people. I'm too much of a wimp. But just be careful, brothers and sisters, that that's not you. Be careful that you aren't just hard and just don't want to listen, that, just don't want to gather for you people, only affirm you, only tell you what you want to hear. I mean, that's our world today, right? The liberals listen to CNN and the conservatives listen to Fox News. Why? Because they'll only hear what they want to hear then. Right. And so just take care. Our Lord was very bold. He said the same thing Paul said to the Pharisees and they were enraged and wanted to throw him off a cliff. And so let's have the faith to receive the hammer that shatters our pride. Let's pray. Father, help us. <clears throat> help us to have the faith to be pruned 
that we, much, that we might bear much fruit to your glory. Father, I ask again that what was said here from the pulpit that was true and good for the souls of your people, that you would bring it to bear in their lives. and What wasn't helpful that you would take. God, give us faith to receive your word truly for our building up that we might be helpful to others. Please bring to us those others that will give us strength and that we can be grateful for. And so, God, for those who are lonely, for those who are new here, for those seeking friendship, would you bring it to them? Bring them people who will help them in Christ, tell them where they need that help, and be good friends. Stick closer to their brother. Be loyal. Help this church to be like that to your glory, that we might sail on this troubled sea to our eternal destination by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge is this. We just sang a very hopeful song. And some of you are not at all at a place of hope when, when the next one's coming. Right? And so that song's tough to sing because it's too cheerful. And so what do you need? You need to know that the beating you're taking is well-deserved <laughs> and it is not useless. It is intended by our God in heaven, brought to you in order to help you be better, to have more faith, to respond with more love, to walk more holy. And so like Paul have faith for the beating. Have faith for the trial. Have faith for the sorrow. Have faith for the loss. Because, you know, sorrow will last for the night and joy is coming. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And amen.